Network. So for all things media and more, check out cageclub.me. Hey everybody, welcome back to X's for Podcast, a show we take a look at comics, mutants, magic, and marvels through their many merry titles. I'm Nico, and you guys can catch me going full claws over on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. That's a reference to my favorite annual holiday reading tradition, Grant Morrison and Dan Mora's Incredible Claws, the badass, super cool, sexy adventurer side of Santa you never knew you needed in your life. Go check it out. It's just absolutely incredible. But here at X's for Podcast, we focus a little bit more on the Marvel side of things. So we've come together today to talk about some of our favorite holiday issues throughout Marvel's incredible back catalog. Now, just like X's for Podcasts, the X-Men are no stranger to holiday traditions, kicking things off back in Uncanny X-Men 98 by Chris Claremont. And just as a number of our contributors point out, like baseball, there's sort of no way to break the X-Men free of the holidays at this point. So many pivotal issues of the X-Men tie into those major holiday moments. There's, you know, Christmas trees in the background if there's sentinels around. And so we're going to take a look at a lot of those greatest hits. We're going to kick things off with our very own Nathan taking a look at the aforementioned Uncanny X-Men 98 before turning things over to Drew for Uncanny X-Men 143. And as a special Christmas bonus, we have Chad from Gray Malkin Podcast bringing you guys X-Factor 27. This is an amazing era. He's an amazing guest host, and we couldn't be happier to have him here on X's for Podcast. And hey, if you guys like what you hear, you'll probably even like what you see. So don't forget to go and check us out over on YouTube and Twitter at X's for Podcast. It's a white Christmas in New York City. The X-Men are skating at Rockefeller Plaza and the Sentinels attack. I guess that means I'm covering X-Men 98 for our very special X's for Podcast Christmas special. Cannot wait to dive into the story. I'm Nathan. You can find me online at Dazzler AOA on Twitter and Instagram. That's right. Dazzler AOA at Twitter and Instagram. <sighs> this issue is a clap. Not only from a story standpoint, does it start the epic Phoenix Saga that, of course, leads into the tragic Dark Phoenix Saga, but it also gives us our new X-Men's first Christmas. We open on a beautiful scene of ice skating at Rockefeller Plaza, and Jean Grey lovingly yells out, Scott Storm, all of you, can you believe it? A white Christmas! And then promptly faints. Not really, but, you know. <laughs> and for the first time in years, New York has itself an honest-to-goodness White Christmas. You can tell this was the 70s because who else says honest to goodness? Ah, oh, classicness though. Then we get into Jean talking to Aurora about the snow and Aurora's like, oh, Jean, I can't help but remembering that on the slopes of Mount Kilimanjaro, the snow was white. And Jean goes, oh, bother, you're worse than Cyclops. <sighs> and then we are treated to Piotr and Kurt stealthily stalking two ladies who happen to be one of them, one of my favorite characters ever. The lovely Miss Amanda Sefton, Jemaine Sardos. You know, Nightcrawler doesn't recognize her here, but he's basically going after.
after his sister. You know, but we don't like to talk about it that much. But yeah, Nightcrawler is basically going to go hit on his sister. And Piotr is just like, hey, I'll follow this other chick here. Sean Cassidy and Moira McTaggart are going to go show each other the sights in New York. I wonder what sights they're going to see. I wonder if they're all over their bodies. But it's Christmas, so we'll keep this clean. And Logan's like, oh, oh bother. I'm going to go uh, pout and smoke some cigars and drink some whiskey. <laughs> and Jean Grey's just like, oh, great. Have a good time. Then we get to a lovely scene of Scott and Jean kissing, broken up by Stan Lee and Jack Kirby, saying these kids would have never done this if we had this book. Still, they should show some fucking respect. Cyclops takes off Jean Grey's coat, revealing her lovely black dress with the plunging back line. And lo and behold, the Christmas part ends, and the Sentinels attack. We are treated to a lovely psychic battle where Jean Grey is decked out all in her holiday red using her abilities. Scott also channeling his holiday red. Obviously, they don't believe in red and green here with his eye beams blowing the Sentinel out of the building. The Sentinel gasses Jean Grey and she finally does pass out here. She faints, but from gas, and takes her away. Scott hanging on by a radio tower, asking how long is he gonna last? Banshee fresh from discovering Moira McTaggart's body, I mean the sights of New York City, sees the Sentinel and somehow transforms sonically his clothes into a costume, which is the costume is much better than the taxi cab driver outfit that he had on before. And he quickly flies off carrying the really, really heavy Wolverine. Like Wolverine weighs a whole lot. So just imagine poor Banshee, how, how loud he has to scream to carry Wolverine up in the air. Aurora transforms into her beautiful swimsuit in the middle of the winter and happens to save Scott just as he falls from the radio tower summoning a hurricane in the middle of New York to take down Sentinels. That is some amazingly epic overkill. Suddenly Scott remembers Oh my god, Professor Xavier! I hope nothing has happened to him. And we are quickly transported to Professor Xavier on Peter Corbeau's fishing boat. He is taking a fishing holiday during Christmas instead of spending it with his lovely students. Peter Corbeau must be his lover or his boyfriend at this point in time. I'm guessing, because why else would you take somebody on a fishing boat trip? Unless you were going to it down. Professor looks a little under the weather, apparently psychically sensing a sentinel. Don't ask me how. As the sentinel attacks, he tries to hit him with a telepathic bolt. And, you know, I guess this is how telepathy works. It blows the sentinel back. And he is able to make the sentinel go under the water with his telepathy because that makes so much sense. And they speed off in their lover's boat. But suddenly, Professor Xavier has a dream of Shiar Empires and is distracted, and the Sentinel pops through the boat, stealing Professor Xavier and leaving his lover, Peter Corbeau, behind to swim away. Maybe he finds Magneto's Island somewhere. The Sentinels and Stephen Lang proudly have Jean Grey, Wolverine, Banshee, and the Professor Xavier on display in their lair. Wolverine valiantly escapes after Stephen Lang slaps the hell out of Jean Grey and slices off the arm of a Sentinel, rescuing the others and tearing Jean Grey's dress. The 
others are able to incapacitate some sentinels and try to make their escape. We worriedly get a scene of Nightcrawler talking to Cyclops, trying to figure out where they are, while they give Peter Corbo hot cocoa and talk about his lover being kidnapped. And we suddenly realize that Banshee, Jean Grey, Wolverine, and the Professor are not on Earth. I have to say, this issue is an amazingly important issue in so many ways. Yes, it introduces Stephen Lang. It introduces Amanda Sefton. It introduces the arc with which Jean Grey becomes the Phoenix. But I love it most of all for that opening Christmas part and that really good holiday spirit that we get from this issue. I hope all of you enjoyed reading this issue when you did for the first time. And I hope you heard enjoyed hearing me prattle on about it. And we all have to remember Christmas is a season for discovering the sights of New York City, of trying to go date your fancy stranger that you meet on the street, going to smoke cigars and whiskey, and kissing the ones you love. Thank you. Merry Christmas. Hey everyone, my name is Drew. You guys can find me online on Twitter and Instagram at for 3 That's at D-R-E-W-S-I-P-H-E-R-3. Today I'm here to talk to you about Uncanny X-Men number 143, Guess What Just Came Down the Chimney by Chris Claremont, art by John Byrne, inks by Terry Austin, letterer is Tom Warschowski, and colorist is Glennis Ween. Now when Nico asked us to do this, I immediately wanted to do this issue just because uh, it was one of the few Christmas issues that popped up in my head, um, and I'm currently going on a big Claremont kick, so I really wanted to get into, you know, the Claremont era still, so. Now the story begins with Storm fighting a group of villains known as the Nagare. It's a close call, but Storm ends up defeating them, or so she thinks. Time passes, based on the art, about a year, and it's Christmas Eve. Professor Xavier is teaching Kitty how to use the Blackbird when they are approached by Angel, who comes to get Xavier because he Everyone is leaving the mansion for the holidays, except for Kitty. When everyone is gone, Kitty starts training in the danger room when she receives a notice that there is an intruder in the building. When she goes to check it out, Storm Solarium, she's attacked by a, a demon Nagare. She strategically guides the Nagare to the danger room and overrides the system for full damage. The, the demon still lives, so she runs to Blackburn and turns on the engine, burning the Nagare. Everyone returns, and Storm questions Kitty as to what happened, and she tells them everything about it. So one of the things that I liked about this issue is it really has um, a full circle moment. So at the beginning, when Professor Xavier is showing Kitty how to use the Blackbird, she's all like, mm, I don't want to use this. Like, this is so stupid. Uh, blah, blah, blah. I have my powers. But later, when she's fighting the Nagare, she gets, like, touched by it, and it, like, but while she's using her phase powers, and it still hurts her, like, her, its hand went through her, but it still injured her. So it's, her powers were rendered useless. She has to rely on these things that um, Professor Xavier is teaching her. In fact, everything that he was teaching her, she needed for this battle. I'm currently reading the OG New Mutants run, and one of the things that gets discussed, like, very quickly in, like, very early on in the run is should Kitty be a part of the X-Men or should she be a new mutant? This goes on particularly in uh, issue 168, Professor Xavier is a Jerk, which is also a Christmas issue. 
this issue really proves that she should be on the team and it's kind of like solidified because she outsmarts the Nagari and she picks the, the closet that's right by the phone so that she can try and phone the X-Men for help using her knowledge of the mansion strategically in order to bring this demon to where she wants it to go. She knows she has to go to the danger room. Yes, she may be a kid, but she knows what she's doing. Because reading this issue, I also got a lot of pulp culture references. And one of them being that the similarities between the Nagare, the way they look, and the, the Xenomorphs from Alien. And it's really funny that in the end of the issue, Katie kills the Nagari the exact same way that Sigourney Weaver kills the Xenomorph in Alien. Another thing that I really thought was a resemblance is the like the home alone kind of aspect of like Kitty being home alone and like you know she is almost like setting traps for this monster this intruder in her home and like she's like setting traps in the danger room and just like in the like you know that uh, Home Alone movie that takes place around Christmas time as well. So it's, unlike Home Alone, I really wish that this issue took more of that Christmas theme and incorporated a lot more. Really, it's just used as a reason to get everyone out of the house except for Kitty because she's Jewish. And I would have liked to seen when this, the Nagari is chasing Kitty around the, the mansion, like, she like has to like push it knocks over a christmas tree or something or you know it has to like click like scurries up the chimney as like a little santa claus reference that kind of would have been like fun to add to the ish to the issue but i think they were kind of going for a more serious tone another thing that i really didn't like is the kitty and colossus relationship now, I've only really been reading a lot of Claremont this year, and so I haven't really encountered a lot of the Kitty Colossus relationship other than what happened in X-Men Gold and and the Whedon run. And by then, with the art, I feel like it, it seems kind of like they were at more of a similar age. But in the art that Byrne does, you can really tell that there's an age difference. Like Kitty is about 14 and Colossus looks old, maybe 18 and he could just like crush her and it's extremely weird and extremely awkward to look at. And he, yeah, I couldn't, did not like that part. Um, anyways guys, that's all I have on guess what just came down the chimney hope you guys enjoyed hey everybody this is chad anderson from the gray malkin lane podcast i am so happy to be here on the christmas special of x is for podcast i've had the wonderful opportunity to work with arturo as a guest host on my podcast a couple of times and i was thrilled to be invited to do an issue review for this christmas special now over at gray malkin lane we have queer friends and allies reviewing the original comics from the 1960s focusing on the x-men uh we get to be a little bit saucy we get to 
take deep dives into nerdy continuity and talk about all kinds of problematic issues of the ways the characters were portrayed back then. We get to look at Iceman being gay long before he was revealed to have been gay, as an example. We also have a lot of wonderful professional guests on, writers and artists and novelists, and we occasionally put characters on trial in deep, fun, long episodes that review insane continuity that's been explored over decades. Now, for today, I am here to review X-Factor number 27. Now, in X-Factor back then, this is the first volume, the original X-Men have regathered and they have kind of set themselves on a mission to protect mutant kids. And they did that in kind of a funny way. In the early issues of X-Factor, they would pose as mutant hunters. So human mutant hunters trying to find these young mutant kids. And then when they found them, they would then take them back as X-Factor or as their, in their mutant identity to give these kids a safe place to stay and live. And we get to see some forgotten characters and also some of our favorites who were hanging out with the team at this time. So some of the students that you'll see in this issue hanging out with X-Factor are uh, Boom Boom and uh, Rusty Collins and Skids and Richter, as well as the little kids, Artie Maddox and uh, Leech. And they're all really fun characters. If you're not familiar, they're all worth looking at. Uh, the team has just gone through a massive amount of changes as we get into this issue. They have just faced Apocalypse for the first time. Apocalypse has machines uh, from the Celestials that allow him to further people's mutations. And he uses these machines to create himself uh, four horsemen. Now, Angel at this time has had his wings amputated. They were badly wounded or damaged during the uh, mutant massacre when the Marauders attacked the Morlocks. And uh, he's become very despondent, uh, even suicidal. But Apocalypse has changed Angel now into the horseman Death, who later, of course, becomes known as Archangel. He has these massive metal wings that uh, kind of have a mind of their own. And he's left the team at this point and just kind of hang off in the background. Uh, X-Factor, we have uh, Cyclops, Jean Grey as Marvel Girl, Iceman, and Beast. And they've all gone through a lot recently. The X-Men, uh, over in X-Men number 225, have had a massive battle with the adversary in which they had a public broadcast of uh, heroism toward the world through, through the media. And the X-Men have all appeared to have been killed at the end of that battle. So the X-Factor team believes that the X-Men are dead. And among them are Madeline Pryor. Now, Cyclops, after Jean Grey uh, seemingly died after she was possessed by the Phoenix Force, Cyclops married Madeline Pryor and had a baby, little Nathan Summers, who of course goes on to become a cable. And at this time he has reunited with Jean. He believes Madeline is dead and he also believes his baby is gone. But there's a lot happening for each of the characters. Now, as well, in the issues before this, Beast has been, he's back in his human form, no longer with blue fur here. He's been infected by Pestilence, the horseman. So every time he uses his strength, he loses some of his intelligence. So you'll see Beast kind of fumbling for his words here and really struggling. And he's kind of the heart of the team in some ways. Iceman is just doing his crazy Iceman antics, uh, but all of the characters are in a really interesting place. Now, as we open this issue, Apocalypse has a massive floating headquarters known as SHIP. It's a celestial ship that has an artificial intelligence that runs it. Uh, it's sometimes called Professor or Prosh, and this ship will go on to become X-Factor's headquarters as well as Cable's headquarters in the future. So this is a, a beloved X-Men character that was around for a long time. But SHIP has crashed to the ground and damaged major parts of Manhattan. So that's kind of a, an opener or a preface to this issue. 
This was released in April 1988. The writer is Louise Simonson. The penciler is her husband, Walter Simonson. And the inker is Bob Wyacek. And I love Louise's X Factor work. It's one of my favorite runs of all time. Now, the mutants and the X Factor and their students are trying to comfort and entertain the civilians. It's Christmas. Uh, the mutants' kids are showing off their powers to try to make people believe that, you know, mutants are normal. There's a really cute image of little Artie projecting a thought bubble of a pink Christmas tree. Uh, boom Boom who's a big trickster back then, tries dropping a little time bomb down someone's shorts as a joke, but Leech uses his powers to stop her. There's a lot of really cute moments here, actually. We see the students really happy when Cyclops uh, kisses Jean Grey. They're all thrilled. They feel like he's moving on and he's able to be happy. But shortly after that, Cyclops sees a recorded message on the news. So this is public of Madeline Pryor just before she seemingly died, telling Cyclops that their child, Nathan, is still alive. And Cyclops, in kind of a dick move, frankly, initially is angry at Madeline for not having protected Nathan. But, uh, you know, who's he to talk? Because this is his his child too. Anyway, he vows to go off and find his kid. And Jean has recently come back to life after she was believed dead for a long time. So in this issue, we get to see her go visit her parents, John and Elaine Gray. They are a little older where she's kind of stayed the same age. And they are, of course, thrilled to see her. But it's a short visit because Jean is worried about them. She's worried that they will become the target of anti-mutant uh, forces. So she lets them know she won't be able to see them for a while. But it's a really cute little happy kind of family Christmas reunion. Jean, of course, is foreshadowing later comic book storytelling in which her parents are really horribly killed by the Shi'ar Death Commandos uh, in, a, in a later issue of Uncanny X-Men. Jean is also worried about her sister in this issue. Uh, her sister, Sarah, has recently been seen with some anti-mutant forces and Jean vows to kind of go look at her. So we get a kind of a rare look into Jean Grey's family life in this issue. We get a really adorable scene when uh, Iceman creates a giant icy Christmas tree on top of the Empire State Building and people are super happy. Beast is interacting with Trish Tilby, who is a, you know, a famous reporter and kind of his love interest at the time. And she's realizing how cute the mutant kids are that he's hanging out with. So there's some really cute kind of family moments here. As Iceman takes the students away on an ice slide, we see them pass a children's hospital. And it's, again, it's Christmas. So they're seeing these sick kids inside. And, uh, you know, far away, we see Archangel kind of in the role of Ebenezer Scrooge standing on a foreign rooftop where he is just disgusted at all of this idea of Christmas. And he kind of flies away in anger as his wings lash out and destroy a chimney. There's a lot of really fun moments here. The X Factor team and their students arrive back at the damaged ship and they find some police officers bringing them a Christmas tree and ornaments to celebrate them. There's also a lot of local businesses that have sent, sent giant stacks of presents for the mutants, kind of thanking them for their recent service and letting them know that they are welcome. And the kids, although they are thrilled by all of the toys, they realize that they've got everything they need with their family and their acceptance here. And so they decide to take their presence over to the children's hospital instead to give it to the sick kids, which is just the most Christmassy thing ever. Uh, it's uh, all of the feel-good, sappy, after-school special Christmas that we need <laughs> in that moment. Uh, Boom Boom, of course, is a little bit reluctant because she's kind of selfish. She doesn't want to give up her gifts, but she picks one sweater out of the pile that she loves and uh, leaves the rest there. 
So first they have to fight off some bullies outside the hospital because there's always going to be bigots. But then they get to take these presents into the sick kids. Uh, we get to see Beast dress up as Santa Claus. Artie uh, is dressed up like an elf. And they're just kind of making everybody happy. It's, uh, it's a really cute uh, issue for Christmas all, as it even furthers the very complicated lives of these characters. We end the issue with kind of a cryptic, dangerous message. Apocalypse and his three remaining horsemen are aware that ship has repaired itself and they decide to leave it behind for X-Factor to use as a headquarters, which they do. And Apocalypse will later come back and try to reclaim this ship. So the issue ends with Apocalypse kind of creepily wishing X-Factor a Merry Christmas. This was a really fun issue to review. It was so fun to go back and read something I hadn't read in a long time. I hope you guys enjoyed this review and I'm excited to hear this along with the other reviews at X's for Podcasts. I look forward to tuning in for more episodes soon and I hope you'll come over to uh, Gray Malcolm Lane and give us a listen. Uh, we're having a great time and we've got so much great stuff coming up with some amazing professionals joining us. Merry Christmas, happy holidays, happy Hanukkah, uh, whatever you celebrate in whatever way you do. I hope you find joy and love and happiness this season. My name is Chad Anderson. If you'd like to find me online you can look at gray malkin p p like podcast on uh, twitter or gray malkin land on instagram i'm happy to uh chat anytime thank you everybody and happy holidays hey everybody okay so christmas in the 90s right very home alone very home alone i guess i don't know what else is christmas in the 90s but we have a number of amazing marvel stories from the 90s and as josh arturo and tim point out these stories represent so many of the most controversial moments in Marvel history, a lot of forgotten moments in Marvel history, a lot of moments that maybe people wish they could forget. But what's really incredible is that throughout all of it, the power of the sort of Marvel holiday spirit continues. Now, I personally did love those Marvel holiday specials growing up. I had so many of them. And when I worked at a comic shop, it just happened to be when, you know, Joey Q was like, let me bring back the Marvel holiday special. And so I did myself a great disservice and bought like a million copies, you know, glad to single-handed try to keep the Marvel holiday tradition alive on the strength of my own wallet. And it was just such a cool thing to see them come back. So the fact that Josh was like, no, that's one of my things. You know, it was just such a great, I was so excited, so happy. And any opportunity where Arturo gets to talk a little bit more about Joseph is absolutely fine in my book. And on top of Marvel holiday special 9293, as well as uncanny X-Men 341, we have the Gen X holiday special. And this is so exciting. So TK, is a great guy and we were so excited to have him come in and talk about one of these holiday issues with us and I, I really love his honesty he's like you know what I love Gen X and I love this at the time and looking back you know let's talk about it right it's always important to remember that sometimes the holiday magic can make a kind of issue a whole lot better and that's just the magic of Marvel and the holidays so we hope you guys enjoy this next batch of segments <music> Hey there, I'm Josh Wheel, and this week on X's for Podcast, we're going to be talking about the 1992 Marvel Holiday Special. Now, this one gets confused a little time. Oftentimes, people think of it as like the 93 Holiday Special because that's the big number on the front. But then if you look closely in the uh, corner box, it actually says January of 1993. Uh, there's another one that has the big 1993 in the title that is from like, December of 93 for the, the 93 Holiday Issue. This one has uh, really fun art 
Adam's art on the cover uh, with Ghost Rider and Wolverine and New Warriors and Spider-Man and Hulk all kind of like blasting out from the left side. It's a huge wraparound. So when you open it up and you look at the front and back covers together, it's got good old Santa Claus holding an enormous toy bag that everyone's coming out of. And then on the back, you can also see characters like Doc Samson, Daredevil, Punisher, Thanos, uh, who has stolen Superman's hat. Superman. Thanos has stolen Santa Claus's hat. And it's it's just a lot of fun. It's a great, great holiday wraparound cover. And for me, it's a bit iconic, I would say, because I remember getting this when I was a kid. I had this when it first came out. So I'm actually holding the OG floppy in my hand. The back had that rear corner box or the corner box that you would get on the direct market covers where they didn't have the barcodes to scan. Uh, commemorating the 30th anniversary of Spider-Man 1962 to 1992. And so I hadn't read this because God, 62 to 92 is 30 years and now it's 2021. So this is 29 years later. (sighs) Spider-Man was as old when this came out as this comic is now, which just blows my friggin' mind. But I hadn't read this in probably at least 25 years. And so going back and reading it was a lot of fun for this holiday special that we're doing here on X's for Podcast. So run down and go through the credits real quick. It has eight stories. Wolverine by Larry Hama with art by Michael Golden. New Warrior Story by Fabian Nicieza with art by Derek Robertson and Larry Malstadt. Spider-Man Story written by Stan Lee with art by Steve Lytle and John Costanza. Punisher Story by Carl Potts with art by Rick Levins and Al Milgram. Doc Samson Story by Peter David with art by John Herbert and Mike Carlo. Dano Story by Jim Starlin with art by Ron Lim and Terry Austin. Iron Man story by Sholly Fish with art by Tom Morgan and a daredevil story by Anne Nocenti with art by Tom Grinberg and Fred Frederick. In between each story is a pinup, gorgeous pinups by the likes of Darren Ox, Abu Summer, Nichan, Dave Cockrum, Kerry Gamble, Ron Garney, Steve Lytle, and Rurik Tyler. The pinups going back were some of my definite favorite part of this. There's a lot of also really great revisionist. Like there's some lost takes on characters in hear that, you know, in a post MCU world feel really interesting and insightful. So uh, we'll begin with uh, the Wolverine story with art that looks just ripped from pre-Fatal Attractions. This is, I'm talking like those last few issues leading up to Fatal Attractions. There's also a lot of really strong similarities to the Warren Ellis issue. I want to say it was called No Way Out and some of that cover art um, from that run. Um, But this is just, it's Wolverine in a completely silent issue, tearing through monsters and aliens and soldiers while some kind of omnipotent being watches on from the sky. And after, you know, six to eight really fun pages of just Wolverine shredding everything in sight, we see that it's actually a little boy being dragged out of the store from his mother, and he's been playing with all the toys in a sale bin, and the Wolverine toy was just destroying all of the other ones. And I love it because there's this great little holiday thing about like the joy of the imagination and like how much fun all of this stuff is. There's no dialogue. It's just kind of paneled out. It's 
It's fun visually to watch. And it's a really great, just really great opening for this book. Followed by a cute, fun Excalibur pinup by Dave Cockrum. That, I mean, some of these pinups, the Dave Cockrum one here, there's a Dazzler one later on, are just like their art that we should be seeing. This is stuff that we should be seeing passed around online all the time. And I totally know the reason why is because this isn't on the legit digital medium. But man, just some some beautiful semi-lost work here. The New Warrior Story by Fabian Nicieza. New Warriors is something I was never super into. I do love, I do love Firestar in there though. And I do remember Firestar and Justice uh, from the Kurt Busiek Avengers run, which is big for me. But like, I could just never get into. I loved the design of Speedball, but there was just nothing there for me as a character. I never understood Namorita, like, and I never understood why she didn't kind of turn up more in Fantastic Four and other titles. Night Thrasher, just, I, I was not a skater boy. The closest I came to wanting to be a skater boy was just wanting Avril Lavigne to like me in high school. But it's a fun little new warrior story about the characters at Christmas time, you know, kind of trying to capture a young adult 20 something feel in, in, in a pretty slight story. The Spider-Man one, right, plotted by Richard Howe with a script by Stan Lee is fun for me because it has that old school electro. I love the design and the art on early 90s Electro. There's a point in the mid to late 90s where they started trying to make him too real because, you know, the original Electro design is very Silver Age. And there's this great period, I would say early 90s, where the quality of the art had gotten better and better to make the Electro design really fun. But it hadn't started becoming like too real where it loses or just kind of like doesn't work with the novelty and needed to be adjusted. So I love these uh, little Spider-Man stories. Plus, I mean, this is this is prime Spider-Man MJ era. And and I feel like Spider-Man walking off with MJ at the end of this was one of the things that I remember most from when I was a kid. Because especially with the Spider-Man cartoon, I love me some Spider-Man and MJ. There's a, a very cool Deathlock uh, pulling Santa's sleigh with all the reindeers in the back, double page spread. We have uh, a Punisher one that, like, I'm not the biggest Punisher fan. I think some of the best Punisher Punisher stories are very disturbing and not necessarily things that I want to reread or dwell on. He's an interesting character for sure, but that has never been my area. So a Punisher Christmas story <laughs> is just a very, very weird thing for me. Then there's a really cool Darren Auk and Steve Montano pinup of the Fantastic Four with a bunch of impossible met with an impossible man Christmas tree. That's a lot of fun. There's a little bit in the art that reminds me like this is more of a, a PG kind of earlier impression. It reminds me a lot of the Heroes Reborn Fantastic Four, the issue four variant, which was the December issue where Jim Lee did the the Fantastic Four around the Christmas tree with the very, very sexy Sue Storm that I think most people kind of recognize and, and as like the classic Fantastic Four holiday pinup. And there's, there's a lot of, of inspiration coming here. And when a bunch of cool little notes too, you know, Franklin's got a, a stuffed Lockheed doll. There's Lockyaw slippers. Sue's wearing Lockyaw slippers. There's some fun stuff in there. In the next story, we get an interesting 
Doc Sampson one that talks about covers kind of Ultron and some other big threats. It's it's fun because you got Doc Sampson really kind of reflecting on on Ultron, on the Ant-Man Goliath thing. It's got like Captain America and Hulk. It's a bit of like and and it's a Jewish based story, so that's really the best part is that he's talking to a Jewish class and talking about Passover as well. And so, you know, not all holidays are Christmas. Yeah. Probably my favorite story in here is the Thanos one by Jim Starlin, uh, which deals with Thanos and being a kind of not terrible father to Gamora and like wanting to get her a baby doll for Christmas and wanting to, you know, and then Gamora saving his life. And so him, you know, agreeing to uh, take her to the lagoon she wants to go to and just it's almost a sweet little Thanos Gamora father daughter story which this is the biggest one I think of really recontextualized like post Infinity War and, and everything we've gotten from the MCU and it's it's from Jim Starlin it's like the original Thanos stuff there's a absolutely gorgeous Dazzler pinup after that we have the Iron Man story next which is kind of slight fun Hulk pinup and then the Daredevil story and this is this is one of the other big ones that I would say like the two really worth going back and rereading today are the Thanos one and the Daredevil one because Anne Nocenti who was you know one of the great Daredevil writers does this really fun interesting one that the whole story is told from the perspective of a wrapped toy that Daredevil has like strapped in his belt while he's swinging around the city doing his stuff and the toy is trying to figure out who Daredevil is by everything it sees by you know why is he visiting a church and why is he going to homeless people and why is he going why is he fighting someone now and why is he you know staring at this couple why is he at this bar why is he and it it just gets to the a real kind of simple crux of the character like going back and forth between you know his personal guilt his his upbringing like the catholic side the people he let down the things that he refuses to let himself forget the the way he separates himself but also you know the the fact that like daredevil can help society in much bigger ways than dropping something off at a toy drive but he feels like he has to go back and like check these boxes of like what looked like what a good person trying to help out would look like when he was a kid and his dad was around like the type of stuff that he would think of his dad doing to try to like make amends or be good that like he's got to go light the candle at the church he's got to go make his confession he's got to drop the toy off and it's this very very human balance that i think nocenti was always really good at in that book and it's fun it is a the art is the art throughout it really has an early 90s but i would say it's right around the time it's just before house style at marvel became Jim Lee copycats. So you have this more cartoony style that I kind of think of from going along with like some of the Avengers or Captain America books. It reminds me of like for me, 37 years old, it reminds me of my childhood. Like go back and find the Marvel holiday special from whenever you were eight years old. Um, And if you're about my age, check out this one if you can. Um, Not available digitally. So you got to go dig it up in a long box somewhere. But a real beautiful fun holiday treat y'all have a great holiday uh and as a reminder right i'm josh wheel you can find me on twitter at asleep the wheel and at asleep at the wheel.com 
And until November 8th, 2022, as a progressive Democrat running for U.S. Senate in Florida, you can find me across social media at wheel the number four U.S. Senate and at joshwheel.org. Have a great holiday. Stay safe, y'all. Ho, 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 and welcome back to Exit for Podcast Holiday Special. I'm Arturo, and today I'm going to be sharing with you one of my favorite holiday issues of Uncanny X-Men number 341. This came out in 1997. It was written by Scott Lobdell, Pencils, Joe Madureira, Inks, Tim Townsend, Steve Bucalato on color, and Richard Starkings as letterer. And... This is Joe Mad at his Joe Maddest. Like the art in this issue is, you know, your mileage may vary, but like for me, this is top tier Joe Mad. So expressive, so cartoony, but superhero-y, just kinetic. Just I, I everybody looks hot. Doesn't look cheesy, but it it doesn't look realistic. Truly one of my favorite artists. Our cast is Bishop. Gambit, Rogue, Beast, his dreadful girlfriend, Trish Tilby, Cannonball, and my favorite, Joseph. Give you guys a little rundown on who Joseph is. Joseph is a clone of Magneto, younger, hotter clone of Magneto with long, luscious Fabio-like hair. At the time, though, and in my defense, uh, this was in 1997, Joseph was presented as not a clone, but as Magneto, right? Magneto had, after the Fatal Attraction storyline and uh, Xavier wiping his mind, Colossus had joined the Acolytes, Asteroid M uh, came crashing down to Earth, Magneto's catatonic body was lost and missing, nobody knew where he was, and then all of a sudden, gorgeous, hot, Young Magneto washes up on the shores of, I think, Brazil. Listeners, I transferred all of my love and affection for Magneto onto Joseph. I accepted him whole cloth as Magneto, just in a younger body. And I was just so grateful that he was back. And I and I thought, here, we, we, we've got a, a refreshed Magneto. And look, and he's being a good guy. This is like a gentler, sweeter Magneto. Maybe this is going to be like the X-Men version of Magneto. So I loved him. I I will always love Joseph. I will defend Joseph the way others would Matty Pryor. Like this, this to me was a real character. And I kind of hated the retcon later that, that he was a clone. So anyways, they are in Rockefeller Center under the big Christmas tree. It is just like where you see like Saturday Night Live, like you know, intros like the the golden Prometheus statue over the the big ice skating rink. The way this art captures this scene is just perfect. Like if you've actually been there, this is exactly the vibe. Steve Bucalato on colors does a great job. Just the gold of the lighting here, the the way he captures the Manhattan sky, the grays of it, it just, just spot on. Beast and Trish Tilby, they were going for dinner and they're asking if who wants to join them for dinner. Gambit's a little bit miffed and Gambit gets out of there because he feels like a third wheel because Rogue and Joseph are kind of hitting it off. So Gambit gets pissed. He leaves. Bishop says he's going to head back to the mansion 
anybody who's had roommates or lives with family knows like sometimes the best time is when everybody else is out of the house and you have the house to yourself. So that's what Bishop goes to go do. And Cannonball whips out a Christmas list for all of his Guthrie siblings and he's got to go to a go Christmas shopping and everybody says, yeah, good luck with that, buddy. You get a little sneak peek, a, a little uh, Easter egg of Frank Castle, the Punisher, just walking by as Sam makes his way to FAO Schwartz. FAO Schwartz, again, huge like toy store in Manhattan, just iconic. And the, the way that Joe Mad's art captures the madness of like holiday shopping at a toy store in the month of December is just like tremendous. You gotta you gotta see this art. Gladiator shows up at this point. Gladiator of the Shi'ar Empire, uh, Praetor of the Royal Galactic House of the Shi'ar Empire. So he's the, the leader of the Imperial Guard, and he shows up and starts tussling with Sam. And uh, you just have to see, again, this art, because this is Joe Mad just doing Gladiator justice. He is such a big, hulking chad of a man and it's just it's incredible rogue and magneto uh, end up getting on a on a horse-drawn carriage for a romantic stroll and magneto uses his magnetism so they are just kind of floating over the city and it is beautiful and rogue looks delighted and then there's a fun page where their midnight stroll goes by the the marvel offices and uh and i guess you know the, the the editor here presumably bob harris is uh on the phone with his wife and he's complaining that scott and joe haven't even started the next issue yet that he freaks out when he sees you know the the floating horse carriage and decides he's working too hard and he should go home and it's just delightful it's just like the kind of thing you can squeeze into like a, a holiday issue and i'll laugh at it where it otherwise might be corny. This was really cute. Yeah, you know, just a big throwdown brawl between Cannonball and and Gladiator. It's so great to see like the artwork again, super kinetic, great movement, and everybody looks hot. Oh, it's, it's a good time. Magneto uses his, you know, magical powers of magnetism to create this Xenox chamber, the, the heart of the Xenox chamber, above, of all places, the Twin Towers, which is kind of, you know, a little bit of a time travel thing. He uses that to basically dampen Rogue's power so he can give her a sweet, soft, gentle kiss on the forehead, and it is just heartwarming, and the art completely sells it. You guys got to read this issue. Just revisit it. If you haven't seen this in a while, I, I really recommend, even if you haven't read this in you know, 20 years or never, check it out. It's just such a fun issue. Okay, this is just a great era of X-Men. It feels like the same kind of vibe of like the, when the X-Men are like playing baseball, like that's what this feels like. It's not them fighting, you know, giant murdering sentinels is them going holiday shopping and like braving Manhattan, uh, you know, in December. And, and it's just great with a nice little superhero fight thrown in. I could talk about this and Joseph forever, but 
I just want to wish you guys a very, very Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, etc., etc. I hope your season is merry and bright, and thanks for listening. The Generation X Holiday Special comes in that fallow time after Onslaught, but before Morrison's new X-Men, where the X-Books were just never at their best and uh generation x as a whole was not super great at this time period which was winter of 1999 this book came out december of 1999 and it is written by joe harris and penciled by adam polina i love the art for this book the story is not good but it is it's not really so bad it's good but it gets away with how bad it is because it is a christmas story because it leans so hard into tropes and because it is so focused on being a Christmas story that it doesn't worry about things like continuity or if anything makes sense or if anything just like if the narrative coheres as a whole. It is a bunch of small little intersecting stories that all come together. And this was, I was always so excited about this book because even at that time when I didn't really like a lot of the X books, I always loved Generation X. They were my, when I was a kid, they were my uh, teen teenage X-Men teams. I thought they were the coolest. I was just starting to grow out of that and become a teenager when this book happened, but I still really loved and appreciated it. And I loved the idea that there was, I think there should be more uh, X-Men holiday specials. This book really works now, or I shouldn't say works now, but it is apropos of the time. The primary antagonists of this book are Nanny and Orphan Maker. And it also, you know, I mean, obviously, Sync is playing a big role in X-Men right now. Jubilee is big on Excalibur. Something about this book feels very, like... I would love for them to kind of reference it. I would love to see them do like a Krakow and Christmas. And I would love for them to reference this book a little bit and some of the things that happen here. So the story is basically about Jubilee hating Christmas because she's an orphan. Concurrent to that, there is a young boy in uh, Snow Valley, uh, where the Massachusetts Academy lies, that is manifesting mutant powers and being made fun of at school. He starts to hatch a plan to get revenge on one of his bullies meanwhile nanny and the orphan maker are living in this cabin slash gingerbread house orphan maker is putting together his christmas list which they show kind of it's a long scroll and you can see little parts of it and he's looking for a star wars boba fett action figure with kung fu grip something involving xena warrior princess at one point it just says a gun but it's this really long rambling list that he's putting together for santa nanny tells him that he needs to go make another orphan meanwhile the rest of generation x is at the mall it's skin sink monet skin is waiting in line to go see santa go sit on santa's lap and you can tell it's just basically one of those moments where he wants to troll because you know he is a very distinct looking mutant and he wants to make that other people's problem monet kind of ribs on the guys a little bit they're not really super central to this story Paige is super sad because she can't go home and Jono is hoping to give her a present and maybe cheer her up a little bit his attempt fails and 
they are also left kind of miserable. So you got Jubilee, who's miserable, this bully kid who's miserable, three of the Gen X kids who aren't really miserable. They're just kind of doing whatever at the mall. And then Chamber and Husk, who are also miserable. And then, of course, you have Nanny and Orphan Maker, who are trying to make more orphans. So Orphan Maker is sent out to go retrieve this new mutant signature that's been detected. And on his way to do so, he detects the Generation X kids at the mall and gets diverted and goes to retrieve them. He manages to retrieve everybody except Jubilee who then feels like she has been abandoned by her friends again. She thinks they just walked home without her. So Peter brings the Gen X kids back to Nanny, who, of course, is not satisfied because these are not the mutants that she... This is not the mutant she sent him out for. Uh, She says he's still got an orphan to make. Uh, So he gets back out into the fray, goes to the town where his signature was originally being detected, and immediately forgets the exact address that Nanny told him to go to. So he just picks a house at random. Jubilee stumbles upon him as she's walking home and follows him into that house, which turns out not to be the house of the mutant kid, but of his bully. And Jubilee attempts to stop Orphan Maker from taking the bully, but as he is flying out of the house with his jet boots, with the bully in tow, not realizing that he doesn't actually have a mutant, Jubilee grabs onto his leg, holds on for a second, but then gets dropped onto a roof. She is just sitting there lying on the roof covered in snow, and yet still somehow falls down the chimney a couple panels later which makes zero sense, but, you know, here we are. She then discovers our uh, mutant kid who is holding Santa hostage. And this is where the story really starts to charm me because you've got, like, not like a mall Santa, because we do have a mall Santa in this, uh, the one that Skin is trying to troll. You've got actual Santa Claus who knows Matthew the mutant's letter by heart, this letter that he sends asking not to be a mutant anymore, and really is trying to comfort and care for this kid and keep him from hurting anybody else. Yet again, Peter has brought home the wrong kid so nanny sends him back out this time with the right address information at hand meanwhile jubilee is talking to santa in this kid trying to kind of get a hold of the situation and realizes that the kid can't hold her hostage because his powers don't work on other mutants but he can hold santa hostage and as they're sort of getting this all sorted out and trying to comfort him over the fact that he's a mutant orphan maker explodes into the house before he can kill this kid's parents and take him back to nanny he sees santa claus and immediately jumps into his lap which just the funniest most like him and him in his giant suit in santa's lap is such a great panel and his enormous long christmas list scroll is uh just ribboning around but of course because this is the real santa claus he is all of peter's old letters and knows that peter has obviously not been nice this year as he is trying to chide and reprimand him Peter starts getting calls from his comms from Nanny, who has, Generation X has gotten one over on her and is escaping and is begging for him to come back. So 
he is torn between trying to stay and negotiate getting presents from Santa and go back to Nanny, which ultimately he does, which just kind of closes out the issue. Somewhere in there, the kid that was holding uh, Santa hostage just fell asleep because he stayed up all night to wait for Santa. By the way, his whole plan was to hold Santa hostage so that Santa could not go to the bully's house after his. And so he was just going to keep them there all night, keep him there all night so that he didn't get presents. But he just randomly, while there's a giant murderous armor-suited dude in his house, falls completely asleep. And so nobody is hostage anymore. The Gen X kids are freed from Nanny. Everybody's walking through Snow Valley, just headed back to where they are. Sink has a really funny moment where they're walking home with the bully kid who has been shitting on them for being mutants the whole time and sink pushes out his aura and says that he feels he's detecting mutant energy coming off of this kid and the kid runs home crying and screaming which just is a great moment jubilee is walking santa back to his reindeer on matthew's roof and they discuss the letter that she once wrote to santa saying that she didn't want anything she just wanted their her family back it's a great moment because he doesn't have anything to say you know he doesn't even give her some the, the spirit of christmas was inside you the whole time he just you know he says that he he heard her letter and she for her part says that she realizes that matthew was not controlling santa the whole time he was not being held there against his will because matthew's powers were working on Santa, which would mean that Santa is a mutant. This is confirmed a couple panels later when Sink is pushing his aura out and detects a massive signature and Santa's sleigh uh, whooshes past. There's a couple more closing panels with Jubilee waking up and just feeling a little bit better about Christmas. I mean, it's mostly one of those, like, everybody's miserable, so I don't really need to be miserable. And there's just a nice closing one-page panel of the group all together with Artie and Leech. Artie drawn weirdly, just not pink enough. Yeah, everybody just gathered and celebrating Christmas. So it's a really cool issue. I love the idea that Santa's a mutant, which has come up a number of times, I think. Again, just feels like in the Krakoa era, it really needs to be brought up again. I really need a Krakoa Christmas special where Santa comes to, you know, claim his spot on the island or like God he goes to Araco to bring Christmas to the Araki. I, I need that. Absolutely. The idea that, you know, nanny and orphan maker could have a moment of being like, oh yeah, we saw you guys one Christmas. Remember? I just think would be absolutely hilarious. I, a Krakoan Christmas special would just make me actually like Christmas and stop being the Scrooge that I am. Overall, this is not a super well-written story. There's a ton of like confusing details and weird plot holes and just like, I don't know, this is what happened just to move the story along. But I do just love it. I loved it when I was a kid. It was really one of the last issues of comics I read before I kind of put them down for a while. You know, I get into holiday episodes and holiday issues. So this told a really cute little holiday story that one panel of Peter on Santa's lap is just the absolute best and I smile about it to this day. Unfortunately, this issue is really difficult to find, but if you are a holiday person, this... Hey. 
Hey everybody, Nico here again. Now, there couldn't be a holiday episode of X's for Podcast without me talking about some of my favorite holiday issues. And while in the next coming weeks, I'm sure you guys will hear me talk endlessly about why Kloss is the adventurer we always needed, or why Daredevil Born Again is the Christmas story that we all deserve. But I want to talk about a sort of maybe forgotten X-Men holiday issue that represents something really important to me. So growing up, I, I was really lucky. My dad was a huge nerd, right? And so I was really lucky. He was like, nah, we're going to raise you in comics. And so I used to get to go to comic cons and comic shops. And if I had an interest, my dad fostered it. It was, it was a really cool situation. And so when I turned 18 and was already blowing too much of my money at a comic shop and needed a job and, you know, the supermarket I was working at was like, yeah, you can have a couple hours. I was like, no, it's no, okay. So I went over and I got a job at my LCS. And my LCS was, you know, a lot of fun to work at. And I was so excited to get to be a part of the sort of movement that was the X-Men revolution. I felt like I was connected somehow. I had returned to the X-Men on the promise of the newness of Grant Morrison. And I was sort of in and out via trade. And then you had Astonishing X-Men, which, you know, kind of said Gene's coming back. And I was like, well, fuck, I'm here for that. And then, you know, ultimately it would be so long before Gene truly came back. Back. But I was really drawn into the sort of enculturation of become one with a line of comics right at that moment. And I remember going through it with my then boyfriend, who is you know, still a member of fandom, and it's super great. And so he and I, you know, we started with Astonishing, and then we took on New X-Men, Academy X. And, you know, then we assimilated Uncanny and Adjective. And, you know, slowly you sort of take on the whole line, and it becomes a part of who you are, right? And and there is something so emotionally palpable to me about the Christmas issue that Chris Claremont and Salvador LaRocca put together for Adjectiveless X-Men 165. Now, funny enough, this issue has a kind of weird series of happenstances around it that make it so magical. Uncanny X-Men had done some really daring things right around 450, uh, bringing X-23 into the forefront. She had been a kind of minor character running around in the background through the pages of Joe Casada's, you know, ultimately kind of groundbreaking, if not quite capable of sustaining NYX. Kid and Nixon remains one of the most interesting characters to come out of the X office in decades. And the visuals of that book were so striking. And, you know, so X-23 is becoming a part of the X family and she's becoming a central identity. You know, she's starting to really grow that way that Miles grew, where the idea of this character took root in a fandom and it just went from there, right? So she's still running around in the Fang costume and it's kind of a weird time for Uncanny X-Men because, you know, we're, we're heading toward House of M and there was just this sense that the X-Men had so much to prove when Grant Morrison left and ultimately Astonishing X-Men was kind of stunt casting, but so many good things happened around that era that are still important things now. And X-Men 165 has a lot of the sort of romance that reminds me of sort of that 
that moment in my life. And I think that's kind of the magic of having grown up alongside Chris Claremont telling me Christmas stories my whole life. I can sort of, not exactly in the most seasons of love rent way, but I can kind of measure my life in stockings and report cards and, you know, sort of Chris Claremont Christmas specials, I guess. And one of the things that this one so highlighted for me was a sense that Chris Claremont was not going to be the guy who kept the new ideas out. He was not going to be the man who said no to the new guard. I'm not saying that I feel that every writer always behaves their best. And I, you know, I know that there's probably stories out there about me (laughs) running this show too, you know? But there was this energy that he was willing to play with these new characters and to see Nori working. And, you know, I really loved those New Mutant kids, that volume two New Mutants by Weir and DeFilippis. I bring them up enough, right? And I loved them running around New X-Men Academy X. And this whole gambit is temporarily blind as a result of the Chuck Austin run that also featured plant Black Tom killing... Sammy the fish boy and you just it's a series of sentences that like the more you say them the more you're like oh 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 right but it's fine so this whole thing with the super stylized glasses, I love Salvador La Roca getting to draw those fucking glasses on everything because that was like a really big part of his style, his image at that time. You know, if you think back on Extreme X-Men, it was Storm and a lot of obvious editorial changes and fucking glasses, right? So I loved the glasses getting to be part of this. And there's that incredible moment. Now, if you're reading this on Marvel Unlimited, on digital page 13 of 25, there's this moment where, you know, Salvador La Roca channeled his best Emma in the best possible way, his best Emma. He summoned up sort of like sexy Queen Frostine, and it's really incredible because this is such a pivotal moment for Emma. I truly believe that if you've read New X-Men, there really is no way you can justifiably make Emma evil ever again, but I understand that that was not, like, the cultural vernacular, right? A lot of people were still, like, untrustworthy, and I'm like, just spotty past and there is this majesty to that moment of her on the page and then she just gets fucking decked in the face with the snowball and it breaks that tension you've got beast playing santa and kate and rachel i guess on a double date being elves together i just you know i feel like the more i go back i'm like how didn't i always see how gay they were together i feel dumb for not seeing it i'm like oh my god they've always been so gay together. Wow. Okay. Late to the party, but here for it. Very excited. Uh, hope that there is maybe uh, a goodie bag for me when I leave. So there are a few hallmarks of this issue that despite this issue being very 2005, it still kind of has that Claremont touch to it. I sometimes think when writers write books, they forget that they're always kind of writing from their perspective. I know that Lila has a lot of fans out there, but I'm... I, I think it's more almost a Chris Claremont hallmark that Lila appear than it is a certain demand for a Lila appearance at an event like this. That is not to say that, you know, Chris Claremont writes selfishly, but I don't know that I necessarily see how she at this point was like a vital drop-in. I also find, (laughs) in retrospect, oh man, I can't believe this is coming up, but so 
Okay, so Chad did that amazing segment on X Factor where he talked about how, and that's the magic of editing. I get to, you know, drop this stuff in. But so Chad is like, oh, look, you know, Jean sees her parents. And I'm like, oh my God, Rachel's seeing her grandparents. And he's like, and then they died. And I'm like, oh my God, Rachel's seeing her. Oh my God. And then they died. Like they die right after this. So Chad, good job, buddy. Good placement, uh, you know, because they die, right? So the ending of this has Xavier and Magneto also being very couple which no, I always saw that we're fine on that. But there's something very removed and cerebral about the approach to Xavier and Magneto that I feel is much more a Claremont thing than a Hickman era thing. And I think this really highlights that for me. One of the things I see here is Xavier and Magneto operating as these shadowy, intelligent figures looking on on the ones they love. And the way I see them in in Hickman's era is a little bit more like, have you noticed? Everything's on fire. And just kind of being okay with it. Just being all right with the burninating. So, okay. I think, number one, when you're talking about Salvador LaRocca and Chris Claremont and their team up, their partnership, you're talking about a pretty legendary partnership that so defines their unique synergy that, you know, Salvador LaRocca did the bonus issue that is unique to that Chris Claremont special edition Marvel made that had the two stories that'll never be reprinted anywhere else. Yeah, I bought it because, you know, you can check out my unboxing video on YouTube. Uh, I literally shrieked in it a number of times so if you want to see 210 pounds jump in the air and shriek and nearly accidentally ruin a variant cover uh, with adhesive you should check it out but so when you're talking about this pairing you're talking about two people who are so intrinsically linked that that's the partnership they chose to use to enter another story into that you know into that world they're one of the unique partnerships that did that so this should automatically transport you to kind of the best of Claremont uh, or at least the best of modern Claremont you know because I think when you're you're sort of looking at those two different eras of Claremont they're sort of like very classic Claremont then there's sort of like later classic Claremont then there's like return Claremont and I think for my money return Claremont works best with LaRocca and it's the last page of this book that really kind of captures that moment for me. And we've recently talked about books that use gutters versus books that don't use gutters. Uh, I like it when you get real vertigo about it and you find a way to incorporate the indica. You know what I mean? But regardless of whether or not you're a corner box guy or you're a virgin cover gal, I think when you see a letters page and you sort of lived through that era of fandom, there's kind of an inherent connection to that era era of fandom in a way that is transformative. And when I think about the the last page of this, and it talks about how Chris Claremont found time from his busy schedule writing Uncanny X-Men, which while he would continue on, he would ultimately not be able to finish out his run due to illness and would receive assistance from then outgoing writer on Exiles Tony Bedard, who had actually been an editor over at Vertigo, just looping everything back to Vertigo for a minute, because, you know, if you work hard enough, you always can, right? So Claremont wouldn't get to finish that run. His Excalibur would be unceremoniously canceled. And while, look, I don't know that I ever really understood, we live on Genosha, we're forging the sword of freedom. Like, I don't don't think that was necessarily the right narrative for the book Excalibur. I know that his new Excalibur, while I am a fan of it, I am the one fan of Pete Wisdom. Hello, it's me. Um, I feel 
feel as though, you know, we're talking about two runs that got canceled unceremoniously. There is also a reference to X-Men The End, which I recently mentioned how much I loved to Jonah because it is a spectacular run. But this back page, this expressions, right? As it were, I don't know why I went full carnage on that. I really think it's incredible because it says December 2004 X titles, and it allows you to paint a picture of where everything was in the X-Men then. And this book really feels like it touches on almost all of these things. You had X-Men 453, which was part of the Chasing Hellfire saga, which kind of took Sage off the board for a hot minute. Astonishing X-Men number seven just came out. So I guess it would be another nine months before the next issue after that, right? X-Men Fantastic Four has the incredibly apt description of Fantastic Four, X-Men, enough said. Mm. So I guess what I'm really saying is, you know, when you think about kind of measuring out your time and you try and use the calendar, right? You're able to remember things like birthdays and Christmases and New Year's. And it wasn't until I said, you know, I love a lot of X-Men holiday issues and a lot of Marvel holiday issues in general. I would really love to do something about that with my incredible team that I came to realize how much of my life I could measure in my trips to my LCS or buying a book digitally or it's just kind of amazing how when you love a series of periodic and that series of periodicals ages with you and transforms with you. And a man like Chris Claremont writes on those periodicals that you grow up reading like they're the golden books of your youth, right? Like, you know, my dad had those X-Men comics. Like I said at the beginning, he was a big nerd, right? So I grew up with these stories as my my stories. These were like, you know, my children's stories. And that I can trace the man who wrote a lot of my child myth, the men, the women, the Andesenti story that Josh mentioned in his holiday special, that Daredevil story is one that has always stuck with me. And listening to Josh talk about it so romantically choked me up so bad. Oh, it's ridiculous. I'm really grateful for this show every day because I have an opportunity to not just get together with my friends, but to get together with my friends and people reach out to us and they say what our opinions mean to them. And I actually really love it when people are like, no, your opinions suck. We're super mad at you because it gives us an opportunity to learn. And like, I'm always like, let me talk calmly and diffuse this, right? So at the holidays, it's just really hard for a lot of people. And, you know, I like to think about doing things for the people it's hard for, right? So I hope that this episode brought anybody who just needed a little bit of holiday cheer, who just needed just somebody to do a thing with them and read along, right? I hope this made your holiday just a little bit better, right? And thank you guys for listening to this show for the last two and a half years. It just wouldn't be as awesome without you. So... Up next, we have two veteran contributors coming back with a little bit of that holiday cheer. Here's Dr. Matt Connor with GLXmas and Tori Sheehan with Daredevil Volume 3, Number 7. Hello, this is Dr. Matthew Connor, and I am so excited to be back on the podcast, and I'm so excited to talk with you about 2005's GLXmas special. I will explain who this team is because we don't hear a lot about them now, but back in John Byrne's run of West Coast Avengers, he had this team of well-intentioned and decently powered superheroes who just happened to live in the Midwest, so they didn't have a lot of crime to fight. So they decided to become the Great Lakes of 
Avengers rather than the West Coast or East Coast, and Hawkeye and Mockingbird helped them for a while. After the Avengers were considered dead after the Onslaught event, they briefly became lightning rods as a support team to the Thunderbolts before the Thunderbolts were revealed as horrible masters of evil in disguise a long story, and went back to becoming the Great Lakes Avengers. Dan Slott, who had that amazing multi-year run on Spider-Man and is currently doing fine on Fantastic Four, wrote a four-issue miniseries where Squirrel Girl joined the team of Great Lakes Avengers, and it was amazing. It was so funny and so dark and really brought out what you could do with nice characters that you don't want to laugh at, but who have kind of weird powers. At the end of that series, the Avengers weren't that popular, and the X-Men really were. It was the time of Grant Morrison's new X-Men. So on the last page, the Great Lakes Avengers turned into the Great Lakes X-Men, GLX, which is why the 2005 holiday special was the GLXmas special. And it holds everything that was so good about Dan Slott's miniseries. It opens with Squirrel Girl talking to the audience, warning about, quote, violence, suicide, and an inappropriate use of the word flock, end quote. And it delivers on all of that with a series of little vignettes with different members of the team. In the Squirrel Girl story, she is running out to buy supplies for the holiday party and bumps into Modoc, and so she and Tippy-Toe, her favorite squirrel, beat up Modoc. Then on the way back, she runs into Thanos, and she beats up Thanos. It's delightful. She is so much fun, and a little bit older than the character that you knew from the Ryan North, Erica Henderson story, but still that sweet, innocent, smart person. The next story was Mr. Immortal, and... His deal is that he dies a lot, and he comes back. He's not especially strong or durable. He just dies a lot, and he comes back. And so he is leading the team through a series of holiday-themed fights with the villainous Dr. Tenenbaum. And in one part, he is fighting sentient Christmas trees, and he has to pull out a big fire extinguisher, and in zapping Dr. Tenenbaum fulfills Squirrel Girl's promise and says, Flock you! And I think of that every time I see a flocked Christmas tree, and it has been 16 years. In true Dan Slott style, it's not just funny and wacky, because when Mr. Immortal dies, he thinks about the death of his girlfriend, a flying dinosaur named Dinosaur, I know, but it was still cute. And, and so there's this meditation about grief at the holidays, where he wishes that she was alive and he can't join her and he can't be with her dead or alive. So he just has to remember her and think about her and maybe put a stocking out for her. The next story is Grasshopper, who is the latest in a legacy. Grasshopper was a character who joined the team in Dan Slott's original miniseries, but died less than six seconds into it because he joined mid-battle and then got hit in the head with a knife. It was really funny. And in that fashion, the new Grasshopper is starting on the team, but he hasn't really tested his suit out, and he does a Grasshopper jump that goes so high that he goes out of Earth's orbit and dies in the cold vacuum of space on his first jump. It's so funny, but it gets even funnier because on the last page of the issue, his body is coming back to Earth. It's burning up on re-entry, and people look up and think he's the Christmas star, and that's 
Perfect. There are a couple of other stories, none of them as good as the three that I've mentioned, but I think what I love about this special is that it has this combination of silly and funny and sad and dark, and that was a hallmark of Dan Slott's run, but I think it's also a hallmark of the holidays for so many of us, especially people with queer backgrounds, where coming home for your family isn't always the healthiest or safest thing to do. And sometimes you just have to see the bleak humor in it to get through this season. So I hope that if you need something like this, that you have access to a funny, sad issue that says it is okay to do whatever holiday you need to do in whatever meaningful way works for you. And we'll see you next year. everyone, this is Tori Sheehan bringing you a little bit of Daredevil this holiday season. We are looking at Daredevil Volume 3, Number 7, written by Mark Wade, penciled by Paolo Rivera, inked by Joe Rivera. Color artist is Javier Rodriguez, and the letterer is VC's Joe Caramagna. Folks, I loved this this Wade series of Daredevil for so many reasons. It's actually the first Daredevil that uh, Nico introduced me to to read after I watched the first season of Netflix's Daredevil and went, well, I just got to have more. One of the things that I love about this Daredevil is the cover is so beautiful. The stark black and white, the little bit of red that is our friend Daredevil, and he's making snow angels in his Daredevil costume. How cute is that. So one of the things I also loved about this series is the fact that we get those daily bugles on the first page where you get updates on what was what you missed. It's a little bit previously on Daredevil. So it's really great. I like looking at it because some of the little side stuff lets me know what else is going on in the Marvel Universe in New York. It's just a really great way to catch everybody up in a really fun and interesting way. Now, when I tried to remember this piece because I read it seven years ago, I remembered the cover and I remembered the inciting incident that there was a bus accident. But this piece, for being a Christmas piece, has two kind of feels for it. One is the amazing Christmas party where Matt Murdock gets to have fun. His I'm not daredevil sweater in the middle of his campaign about not being daredevil. Foggy's wearing reindeer ears. Like, everyone's having a good time. He's pretending to bobble his wine bottle so he can get closer to his cute little lady. He is peak Matt Murdock having fun, which I love because while I adore Matt Murdock when he is feeling his doubts and sadness and guilt as Daredevil, I much prefer fun Matt Murdock, which is why I always love when Mike Murdock shows up. But the other half of this is about terror and fear and a loss of faith in in oneself and hope in the face of of severe challenges. 
you know, somebody dies. We kill off the bus driver in this horrific bus accident. These children almost freeze to death. Matt almost freezes to death. He is wildly underprepared to take care of children in a snowstorm, which is one of the environments where a lot of his daredevil senses actually do not work in his favor. Now, you might be you might be saying to yourself, self, why is Matt Murdock wandering around in his daredevil outfit when he's just taking some kids for skiing? To which I respond, we all need long johns when it's cold out, and daredevil long johns are the best that there are. But the Christmas holiday feeling of the kids coming together despite their adversity and their issues to save Matt as opposed to Matt saving the day is one of the great joys of Daredevil and the humanity that exists underneath the devil mask. I think this is beautifully done, stunningly drawn. You you feel the isolation. You feel the despair. You you see the snot freezing out of Matt's nose. Like this is actual danger that while you know that Matt's going to get out of this and they're probably not going to kill a passel of kids on a Christmas issue. You are deeply concerned that they might not make it. I think that that is a bold choice for a Christmas issue. That's normally a little bit of fluffy, a little bit of punching a guy that you know you're going to beat kind of issues. And I think this is a strong contender for one of my favorite Christmas issues in the Daredevil runs. And I just think that it's well worth your read. So definitely check it out. Again, this has been Tori Sheehan here on Access for Podcast. You can find me online at at Tori underscore Sheehan on Twitter and at SM Tori. That's Tori with an I on Instagram. Back to y'all. Coming up next, we have three ridiculous segments that I am so excited that we're covering. We have veteran member of our team, Mikey, returning. Now, this is Alpha Flight Mikey, guy who was just in it for the toys with the contest of champions, Mikey. That Mikey, who, you know, spoke, I think he's the only person who's ever spoken Polish on our show. So that's super cute too, right? Mikey comes in to talk about Hawkeye number 17. Now, this was actually a personal request for me. I'm a huge fan of that run of Hawkeye and not just that run of Hawkeye, but those characters and Pizza Dog. And it was just so exciting to have somebody I love read something I love. So I had to have that happen. Now, of course, speaking of people we all love, Jonah read the Merry Christmas Xmas special, X-Man special from a few years ago, and it really had some powerful moments, and I was so happy that he covered it. After that, Raven is going to bring the Deadpool, and, you know, we try to cover Deadpool on this show. I wear so much Deadpool gear. I love that dumb fuck. And, you know, every time we try to cover Deadpool, the book stops. So I promise when Deadpool starts back up, especially seeing as he was recently revealed to be in that gorgeous, amazing upcoming Destiny of X image, I'm excited to get to cover Wade as a guy who evolved into my Wade fandom. I didn't start a Wade fan. I became a Wade fan. So I'm really excited to get to cover him live. But until then, here's Mikey, Jonah, and Raven with Hawkeye, the X-Men, and Deadpool for your holiday enjoyment. Hey there, 
there, what's going on everybody? It's Mike the Board 9. You may remember me from the Alpha Flight days of X's for Podcast, as well as Contest of Champions. I'm here today to talk about a very cute and funny issue uh, for X's for Podcast Holiday Edition. It is Hawkeye, issue 17, written by Matt Fraction and Chris Iliopios, and David Aya art, as well as color art by Jordi Belair. So first thing I want to point out right now is I love the artwork. It's very reminiscent of how artwork was in the late 70s and early 80s. Uh, it's very subtle to the point and the background is just perfect, I think. Uh, we start out with Clint Barton and he is home wearing a Santa Claus hat and he just seems exhausted and he is asking what's on the television and everybody's saying it's Winter Friends. So then we jump into NBC's Wintertime Winter Friends Winter Fun Special. This is really cute. I, I think it's really funny and the whole issue is just the story about the Winter Friends. The Winter Friends are a very diverse cast of animals uh, portraying different holiday traditions. We're going to go with traditions. No, uh, different holidays, I guess. Not really traditions. You got Yaldo representing the holiday Yalda, Rama in pajamas, it's the Diwali Llama, uh, Santalope, which is the Christmas antelope. You have uh, Samantha Hain, the pagan princess for uh, Sawin, or Samantha Wynn, I guess. It's Sawin. Don't be confused with Halloween when they say Sam Hain. It's Sawin. You have the Kwanzaa Gator representing Kwanzaa, and you have Minorable, the adorable Minora cat representing Hanukkah. So our winter friends here are called to save the day because, well, it just got really hot and it's the sun. I'm guessing this character that's representing the sun that's causing everything to warm up is supposed to be a uh, take on big business and global warming uh, because he's wearing a suit and some glasses. So I think that's the take we're going with here. Anyway, everything gets warmed up and that's ruining the wintertime fun and festivities as well as the wintertime holidays. So everybody shouts for Steve, the dog with no powers. So Steve hangs out with the winter friends He's got no powers, and that's kind of funny. Steve hears his name being called and rushes to get his costume. He's interrupted by a bunch of other dogs who keep hearing his name uh, and say, Hey, Steve, somebody's calling your name. So he thinks he can do it all by himself to save the day. Um, however, it doesn't look like it because as him and two other dogs go out on an adventure, they are attacked by a pack of dingoes. And the dogs manage to get the upper hand on the dingoes, and a new group of the dogs come, new group of dogs come in. Um, they look like other dog superheroes and they're also super adorable the dogs chase away the dingoes and they go on to follow steve as well steve makes a break for it and then the dogs secretly go on to follow him spoiler alert uh, as steve goes on to save the winter friends so steve ends up going to the sun palace where it's getting progressively hot the closer he gets the sun palace is a really nice take on old school comic book fortresses i think um you have the giant sun dome in the middle followed by like a castle in the background uh I think it's just beautifully done and beautiful artwork. And again, it really captures that early 80s feel, uh, late 70s, early 80s feel of old comics and how they, you know, everything was always big and, and strong and, and just out there. So it's summer. The uh, sun executive business person, he probably has a name. I just didn't catch it when I was reading this. But either way, Steve comes. He's got all this, the winter friends tied up. Um, and he is bragging and singing about how he's going to make it summer and ruin all the holidays. So Steve comes in and starts on the attack. Um, the Quanzigator does let him know that he's like, hey, Steve, uh, he's kind of out of your league here, bud, because he's a supervillain. 
alone and you have no powers. But while Steve is distracting Business Son, uh, Steve's other dog friends go out and save the winter friends. So now there is just a pack of animals and dogs ready to attack Summer, but they have to call in some help because Summer is just kind of strong and you know he's bringing the heat, no pun intended. So they bring Mother Winter. Mother Winter takes out the sun and tells Steve he's been a good dog. So back at the Winter Friend Fortress, everybody is celebrating the holiday festivities and Steve is there with Lily, the dog, and they are just saying, Steve, we couldn't have done it without you and that they love him. That was a cute story. Honestly, I, I think it's just a nice, fun story you can read to your kids. Um, it's a good one-shot issue. I mean, it's part of the Hawkeye's uh, line that Matt Fraction did, but it's a standalone piece. Just read it on its own. It's very cute, very well done, and it's drawn just adorably. So the family leaves and Hawkeye Guy, or Clint Barton falls asleep after the special is over and Pizza Dog from the Hawkeye TV series is there and he just snuggles up next to Hawkeye uh, or Clint Barton rather while he's sleeping on the couch. So if anybody of you if any of you have dogs out there or pets that just love to snuggle this is just that and it's just really adorable at the end how he just lays on Clint Barton's chest and it's just very wholesome very cute wholesome story. Uh, I think it's adorable and I hope you enjoy it too. So if you haven't checked it out please do so. Um, thank you for listening to Access for Podcast. Uh, if you you'd like, uh, I would really appreciate it if you can go check out my YouTube channel, Mike the Borg 9, M-I-K-E-T-H-E-B-O-R-G-9. Uh, on YouTube, I talk about all things gaming, reviews, card games, uh, spotlight things, flea market finds, New York Comic Con, all of the above. Uh, please go and give a like and subscribe. I would really appreciate it. It would mean the world to me. Uh, thank you, and thank you, Nico Action and Friends, for allowing me to be on the show, and I hope to see you again. Hey everyone, welcome to the seasonal episode of X's for Podcast. I'm your host Jonah and I hope you survive this experience just like I hope you survive this holiday season and get to enjoy the festivities in whatever way brings you the most joy. Today I'll be covering the Merry X-Men Holiday Special which came out on December 5th, 2018. Similar to our previous coverage of Marvel Voices, this is a collection of short stories by different uh, creative teams. This issue follows the X-Men from December 1st to Christmas Day of December 25th and basically what they're doing in their own downtime. I personally really enjoy stories like these because I think this is the best way to get your audience to connect to your characters, show them what they're doing to make them as relatable and humanizing as possible where you can see yourself in these characters. I think all of these stories are really great and today I'll be talking about just a couple of them that really stood out to me personally, but it's not to say that I didn't enjoy them. Every single person who put their work in to this is greatly appreciated because it's just really fun getting to see how the X-Men deal with the holiday season. It's really one of the most special things that you can do in terms of generally of being able to show what your characters are able to do in their downtime. So I was very excited to read this a couple of times and like really see like how some of my favorite characters react and what they do. The first story personally for me that stood out was December 4th, which is a Gene and Wade story where... (laughs) Deadpool is very excited at the prospect of spending the holidays with Gene and being put in precarious situations. And Gene, as Gene does, is very concerned as to why this is all happening and what's going on and what's the larger play. And she doesn't remember how she got to this room or the next. Wade clearly does not care and is very happy to spend time with Gene. And they have a very interesting chemistry that I haven't seen before. And seeing them interact was really funny. And the big twist is that this is a girl, a young 
little girl playing with her action figures, her dolls. And the thought that these dolls were sentient beings, a la Toy Story, but as the actual characters, was really good. I I really enjoyed this one, just for the amount of comedy that was able to be put in, and the chemistry between these two characters that I haven't seen interact before, personally. The next story that I want to talk about, more so for the continued through line of current continuity, is December 5th, which is a Nature Girl story talking about how during this season, Nature Girl feels isolated because of how many trees are wasted. And if you're following current Infinity Comics, Nature Girl is the star of X-Men Green and basically going on her own eco-mission to basically save the Earth from pollution and people who are bad and don't treat the Earth properly. I liked this story specifically because of this continued characterization that's following that's following her around. And I like that we can still see, even during a time where you're meant to be happy and you're meant to be in this very festive mood, Nature Girl can't stop worrying about the world and the Earth around her because she's so deeply connected to it. So I really like that. I like that ter- in terms of just continuity for this character and that you could see it in issues that came out three years ago. So good for good for people on the Marvel team. The next one I want to talk about, December 14th, which is a Nightcrawler Wolverine story, which I want to say thank you to Chip Zdarsky, who wrote, drew, and colored the entire thing by himself. I often talk about how much I love Nightcrawler, obviously, <laughs> but I also love the interactions between Wolverine and Nightcrawler. Wolverine doesn't act in the same way when he's around other people than when he's with Nightcrawler. He's a lot more relaxed and passive, even a little submissive, which is very fascinating to see that he is much a little bit of a different person when he is with Kurt. And I like to attest that to Kurt just being such an overwhelming, uh, sometimes pious man who's just so well-meaning and positive and wants to help that I think you can't not just have a good time around Kurt. I think this story is just, it's just everything to me. And it's everything to my little slash, uh, my little slash loving heart that I love for these two characters. So thank you, Chip, for this story that will, uh, I will be thinking about a lot. The next day that I would love to get it to talk about is December 17th, which is a, a Braddock family story, which I really like. I like seeing that we're not in the X-Mansion and we're seeing some characters that are X-adjacent, not uh, strictly in X-titles, even though current day they basically are. I, one, love Maggie. Maggie is hysterical. Maggie is one of the best children that has ever been written because she's not written as a child. And it's very funny to see her all pouty and be mad because she is a lot smarter than a child, but has the body of a child. It is just beautiful, perfect writing. And seeing that moment where Brian gets to see Betsy back in her own body, it is just truly magical and special. I I really like I like these two Braddocks a lot. Jamie, I'm still working on. I enjoy reading Jamie, and it's very. <laughs> but uh, I, when it comes to the Braddocks, I, I do love Betsy, Maggie, Megan, and Brian so much that I really, really get to enjoy seeing them get to be a family. Because oh boy, they don't really get to be a family that often. They're uh, they go through a lot. It's almost like um, they're in their own drama. Granted, the X Men basically is a soap opera, but they family themselves have been a soap opera for a very long time separate from the X-Men so getting to see them have a little bit of a downtime and have a really beautiful family moment almost it's kind of like uh 
someone returning home, whether you're away or whatever you're doing for whatever reason you're away. It's really special if you see someone that you love and care about so much, especially since this is your twin sister. The next one that really, really made my heart swell was December 19th. This was written by Vita. Thank you, Vita, for this story. I personally love every single Wolverine, uh, and as well as Wolverine Child. I love Logan, Dokken, Laura, Gabby. I really do love all of them. I would <laughs> uh, I would love like an Adam's Family uh, value kind of like book, movie, show, whatever, starring all the Wolverine kids. I really love their interactions, not only with one another, but with their father, Logan. Really interesting. And this Gabby story was just so precious. And just to see her so full of life and happy and trying to figure out who got her as a secret Santa. And like the thought that Gabby is very close with the Cuckoo sisters, the Stepford Cuckoos, uh, makes me really happy for some reason. I like when not only do character parents have an interesting relationship, but I like it when their kids have an interesting relationship too. And the thought that Wolverine and Emma might not like each other that much, but their kids are very close, makes me happy. And I would love to see more of that like through line today. I'm not sure if there's more, but that personally, I really do enjoy and love seeing <laughs> seeing Gabby just hug, uh, I believe it's Celeste. It's one of those sisters. And it just it's just so precious and beautiful. So thank you for that. And then the last story I'm going to talk about before I get into, there's a, there's a little bit more of an overarching story in this, which is pretty interesting, is December 22nd, which it is not a happy tale. And it, it focuses on Beast and Beast going home for the holidays. And the X-Men have always been a stand-in for any marginalized group. And if you haven't heard that or you didn't understand that, it's very, it's very clear in, in their allegory. It's not that subtle. And this story really drives that home and while they're, the X-Men often represent every single minority in that it's just they represent the the idea of a marginalized group. This was personally for me a story that hit a little too close, uh, a little close to home about being a queer kid and the things that your family says that stick with you for negative reasons and they don't realize it and they don't realize that either you're an earshot or the way they're communicating certain ideas comes across as harmful and like I would have thought I had grandkids by now it is a uh, oh boy so I also like that this story delved into a lot of different moments and ideas of the holiday season that aren't always as joyous and I think that's also really good because not everything is always going to be positive and unfortunately not everybody gets to enjoy the holiday season so seeing a story like this also helps bridge that gap where it's kind of like adding lemon to a cake you're adding a little bit of that sour bitter acidicness to cut through the sweetness and sometimes you really need that to make something really beautiful like this uh, collection of stories. And finally, we're going to talk about the Jubilee story. So a bunch, a couple of different days throughout this issue focus on Jubilee and Shogo, where Jubilee is taking Shogo to Hawaii for a uh, vacation. And she's really excited. Shogo's lovingly hugging a Banff doll that was originally Ileana's, and it is so cute. Shogo was adorable. I love seeing Jubilee in this light, post-vampire apparently, which is hysterical to me. This story, we see Jubilee being accidentally captured and surviving in this weird place which looking back I should have been like oh yeah this makes sense and we see Jubilee basically not only fighting for her own life but making sure she protects her son in a way that he's not in any explicit danger and you look back and you're like huh oh because it is revealed that a couple of business people hired Arcade to 
create a mall for them specifically but arcade being arcade the twisted little man child he is turns out <laughs> makes murder mall which has a 41% survival rate for a mutant superhero or I guess it was 41% survival rate and all of his investors were like no we just wanted a regular mall for the holiday scene and he's like but you don't understand people would be lining on the doors because it's the perfect blend of escape room and savings and I was like well this is a way to sell me on arcade because that's a hysterical way that arcade would think about this is that he creates escape rooms because yeah that's the definitely is escape room where the price is your life I really just like seeing Jubilee get be able to kick some ass and like it's this is basically Die Hard Jubilee is in her own version of Die Hard and now I just want to see a full-length action film so Marvel please do that for me for this holiday season please put Jubilee in Die Hard literally the exact same movie but it's just Jubilee I think I think it'll be a hit so <laughs> with that thank you for coming on this journey of me talking about my favorite things for this title and if you are interested in reading there's so many other great stories that I think anybody can find and connect to please find this go pick it up at your local comic shop if they have it it's available online on Marvel Unlimited it's a cute little read if you just need something to just relax to and you don't really want to think too hard about it it's just a good time so thank you for following me on this journey Hello and welcome. I am Raven, aka Dame Red Bento. You can find me over on Twitter, Instagram, oddly enough, a lot of TikTok. And today I'm going to be covering Deadpool Seasons Beatings. This is, uh, how do I put it? Uh, <laughs> if you know Marvel's voices, um, that's a great way to kind of describe this particular comic book. And we get to have a bunch of fun, smaller comics all wrapped up into one giant holiday special starring Deadpool. It was made in 2018 and is dedicated to Stan Lee, who lived from 1922 till 2018. In this story, I find the artwork very interesting. It's it's super stylized in a form of art that we probably haven't seen for a long time. It, to me, it was very reminiscent of, say, roughly the 1960s, 1970s-ish, or even better yet, it feels very much like an indie comic, which I actually kind of really enjoyed. Art styles do switch a little bit between each of the stories, but holds decently consistent in not only its coloring, but its construction. And I really enjoyed that. The, the writer was Jason Latour. The artists were Greg Hinkle, Chris Brunner, Veronica Fish, and Mario Dopinio. Color artists are Rico Renzi, Jim Campbell, and Veronica Fish. And letter is VC's Travis Lanham, who we've, I believe we've had quite a bit of his work on our podcast, which is yay! <laughs> Good to see that people are having longevity in their careers. It makes me very happy. Uh, the cover was actually done by uh, Marcos Martin. Um, a variant cover was done by uh, Jason Mature. Uh, the recap page art is done by Anthony Gambino. And our assistant editor is Lauren Amaro. Devin Lewis is the editor. And Nick Lowe is the executive editor. There was a lot of people involved in making this comic, and it was absolutely fabulous. So getting right into it, uh, we see that it is Christmas at the mall. And unfortunately, Santa does not seem to be anywhere to be found. Um, instead, we have classic X-Force, which just made me absolutely giggle because if you've known X-Force, they were really popular for, for a hot minute in the 90s. <laughs> 
And then, you know, they went their way. Uh, we have seen them come back in, um, in their own book, X-Horse, tied to the X titles, of course. But it's kind of, it's kind of funny because it's very tongue in cheek and they do poke a little bit of fun at the old classic X-Force. Um, <laughs> and I, I love the fact that, you know, uh, Dom and, and Campbell are there and just going at it. And she's like, look, we are, we're, we're, why are we here? We're not meant for kids. Which she's, she's right. If you've ever read the old X-Force, they were definitely, they were definitely not for children. From the inside of the mall, we find Deadpool out in a dumpster, which, I mean, God, how many times have we found poor DP neck deep in a dumpster? I, I mean, you know, several occasions, including a movie. <laughs> but yeah, he gets out, he rummages through his big sack. <laughs> And, uh, you know, it's looking for all kinds of fun, fourth wall breaky kind of stuff to do. Uh, it cuts to our first story, which is Peter Parker doing his Spider-Man thing. And, of course, calling MJ and kind of letting her know that, yeah, sorry, won't be, won't be home. It, it, it's either MJ or, or his aunt. But yeah, he's, you know, he's out being Spider-Man, which means getting tore up and fighting, you know, Mysterio and Hobgoblin, Black Hat. You know, just getting just whoop, and you know, as always, he has just been absolutely, you know, running his butt off, trying to get everything done, get his costume put back together, and just running himself into the dirt. We see him as he's kind of walking up and just doing his thing, just being a regular human being on the streets, and you know, just kind of runs into a guy, starts making some small chat in front of a perfume store. Cuts from there to a picture of Miles and his best friend, and you know. The best friend's like, hey, we should just, you know, come on, let's let's get you something fun for Christmas. You should get something for yourself. Because you don't, you know, you do so much for this city, you know, being Spider-Man. Why not treat yourself? Treat yourself. <laughs> but yeah, spider sense is tingling and he's off like a shot. Uh, cutting back to Peter Parker, who just looks tired as all get out. Because he's just realized that the guy he was talking to is going to try and go full supervillain. Miles takes off, goes to help thinks that poor Peter is venom of all things because he's wearing an older Spider-Man suit and decides that, you know, no, I'm gonna I'm gonna be Spider-Man for the night. Pete, you should go home. And of course Peter wants to fight him on it and then just ends up passing out from pure exhaustion. Which lovingly Miles puts him in a cab and makes sure that he gets home for Christmas for once because he's had plenty of rest and he's you know, he's been doing the Spider-Man thing, but he hasn't been running himself to exhaustion. So Miles takes over Spider-Man for the night, which that just that makes my heart so happy because I think Miles Morales has been one of my favorite Spider-Mans in a lot of ways because he recognizes that, yeah, he's he's not the full-time Spider-Man, but, you know, family and friends and not working yourself into the ground are a good thing. So, yay! From there, we go to Nut and Bots. <laughs> Which is, of course, <laughs> let, let very off. I'm sorry, I giggle so much at this because of who's in it. But yeah, it's 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 doom. It's Doctor Doom. And of course, he's made you know his decree that there's to be no merriment, no merriment this night because you know he can't stand you know niceties and festivities and holidays and things that are not focused on him. I mean, you know, same old doom. I think he stays like, oh man, somebody really needs to 
crack that tin suit open and find the man that's actually inside. But dun -dun -dun -dun, to the rescue, we've got Squirrel Girl, which she brings one of her squirrely friends along. They take out the Doom, well, the well, the Doom bots, I should say, and decide to actually drop in and kind of have a little heart to heart with Doom, which you know, of course, Doom. Yeah, yeah, you're you're like only my sixth most you know, hated arch enemy type person, so um, I'm not even gonna, you know, acknowledge you. He's just like, oh, come on, it's Christmas. Plus, it, I brought you a gift, and, you know, there it is, go ahead, take it if you want. And he ends up, he ends up tearing open the gift, and actually really enjoying what's inside. Which, I love Squirrel Girl, because, yes, she's a fighter, but she also, quite often, will actually um, talk through and take a different approach to dealing with a lot of villains, which most people don't talk to villains, they just punchy-punchy and go from there. So it's nice to see a different approach taken. And I think somewhere in there, Do really does appreciate the gift that she got him. So, yay! Uh, we pop back over to Deadpool, wondering, WTF? Like, seriously, what was this? What is what the hell? <laughs> and here comes Squirrel Girl with the little squirrel and friend, squirrel friend in tow, <laughs> ready to give Wade a gift. And of course, he's having none of it. I love Wade. He cracks a ton of jokes, but yeah, every now and again, he does get to be Mr. Grumpy Pants and just, you know, doesn't want to do anything. So he's like, eh, nope, nope. Here, let's just stare into the sack until we find what's supposed to happen next. <laughs> Back to the story. So we get to pop over to, <laughs> I'll have to say one of my favorite stories in this book um and it is kate bishop and quentin choir of all people kate bishop and quentin choir uh with a detective trying to figure out this particular santa murder that has happened at the mall um hence the reason there is no santa and x-force has to be there instead <laughs> so it's a holly lala days boy that's a mouthful right there Enter a scraggly bunch. <laughs> I don't know if they're supposed to be like pirates dressed as, as Santas or if they're supposed to be hobos dressed as Santa. Wow, they're they're just ooh, they're a rough bunch, let's just say that. And we see Kate and Quentin, you know, talking over Quentin going in and, and just, you know, looking through these guys' minds, figuring out which one of them killed the, the Santa that's on the floor. <laughs> and they come to a little bit of a, a, a okay, fine. Maybe, maybe we'll just let you, maybe we'll make you a bit of an Avenger, you know, eh, you know. We'll, he's like, okay, okay, cool. I'll just, let me go through this first one. And the first one, he dives deep into their mind and he finds a lot of drama centered around the holidays and Krampus. So, yeah. <laughs> so while he's in this poor dude's mind, and, and of course everybody else is freaking out because their friend is on the floor, other Santa's like, oh no, this is not going to happen, we're taking off. Of course, Kate goes ahead and puts them back in line, and uh, upon stopping them from running away, she hits one of them with a boxing glove arrow, screaming, Happy Boxing Day, jerks! It turns out, oh no, we've got a Super Scroll in our midst. Um, apparently the Super Scroll is there trying to get some gifts and whatnot. A bit of a weird flipsy-flopsy loop about, and of course, 
because he had shifted into a Sienna, he had it kind of gotten stuck in that mental loop for a bit. And cut back to, you know, Wade and Squirrel Girl, just absolutely looking perplexed as to what was going on. And and Wade realizes, oh, oh, that's why I'm covered in blood, because he had killed them all Santa. Not even in a, a, a murdery kind of way, just things, of course, had gone sideways, but yeah. Uh, apparently he likes to come to malls at, at Christmas time to serve justice and whatnot. But as they walk into the mall, they notice a ton of people dressed in random X-Force and X-Men style cosplays. And they're like, what the hell is going Are you kidding me? And of course he, he dresses down Cable, who's kind of sitting at a table uh, next to Domino and uh, Cannonball, and they're all just like signing um, <laughs> autographs and stuff for a crowd of people that Cable had brought to the future so that X-Force can be popular again. It's funny because the gift that uh, Wade had thrown away actually turns out to be a really thoughtful spider pig bank. Um, and it says, Dear Deadpool, I got to this bank to remind you that everyone, even you, can change. Happy holidays, Squirrel Girl. Which is just too cute. But yeah, I, it, this was such a fun little light-hearted uh, short story collection that I absolutely adored it, and I thought it was really, really funny and well done, well put together. Um, but yeah, so have a very Merry Christmas, Happy New Year's, Happy Holidays, whether you uh, celebrate Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, Baha'i, Yule, um, there are so many different holidays out there. I really hope that every one of our listeners enjoys the holidays with good friends friends, good family, and please come see us. Come start a conversation. Um, If nothing else, we'd love to hear from you during the holidays. Have a lovely one! All right, everybody. So it's so fucking ridiculous how many times we've come back to King in Black. You know, Arturo made this dramatic joke a million times that King in Black just wouldn't end. And I was like, yeah, okay, fine. No, I think he's right. We can't stop talking about it. And I actually think that's a testament to how much quality work came out in King in Black. Now, it's unfortunate that it felt a bit piled on top of itself. And for many people who don't really have as much a affection for kind of like the goopy lantern core. I think it's tougher to emotionally connect with the idea of King and Black and Null. You know, for me, it was really about following through on the ideas of Jason Aaron's, you know, sort of Null concept and the all black and, you know, but neither here nor there. Tune into Kyle and Nico's upcoming Thor bros. But Steve comes in with an incredible take on two King and Black specials that I now know no, I can't wait to read. Guys, we love making this show for you every week, and it just wouldn't be the same without you. We're going to have another episode of regular coverage and then one more holiday special to close out our holiday coverage for the year. Guys, until next time, enjoy Steve in this last segment. Keep those mutant lights lit, those Krakoan gateways open, and as always, we'll see you on the other side. Hello. It's me, Steve. I'm back with X for Podcast to talk about some of my favorite Christmas comics from last year. Today I want to talk about a two King and Black uh, Christmas specials that were tie-ins to the King and Black event of last year. 
uh, over the holiday season. First up, I'd like to talk about King and Black Immortal Hulk. This is one of my favorite tie-ins to the Immortal Hulk. I've got, I really enjoyed every single tie-in that they put out, but this one was really a miracle of economical storytelling. The layout work is phenomenal, but let me just get right into it. This one's written by Al Ewing, and that's written in a loose sense. Al Ewing came up with the story and plot, but there are no words. This is a dialogue-free issue entirely, which is always something I have a lot of fun with. Aaron Cooter is handling art duties and just absolutely phenomenal work with the pacing of the layout. The ability to tell a story with absolutely zero words is always a, a difficult one, but the pacing is really something marvelous here from the way that the book opens with a beautiful snowy view of New York City splash page and then quickly shunts to these thick black gutters surrounding sort of like um, film with frames depicting setting the mood depicting the scenes in the streets and then quickly devolving into short triptychs of boxes to um, display a sense of motion and change over the course of the comic. Frank Martin and Eric Arseniega come through really hard with the colors on this one. It looks completely phenomenal. And we have Corey Pettit, as always, on letters. I was just completely wowed away. It's a simple story, and it's just a delightful one. The Hulk is wandering around, mostly depowered of Gamma, in New York City on Christmas Eve, and is just having regular Hulk adventures, you know, running into people, frightening the hell out of them on accident, and then getting lost in the wonder of the moment. This is the childlike Savage Hulk that we usually have, and um, or we usually had before Immortal, Immortal Hulk started up. The, the look of childlike excitement and wonder on the Hulk's face in several of these scenes and the looks of just abject confusion or fear or pain are so evocative of a true childhood in a way that no other artist on Hulk has really captured for me, ever. It's a welcome change from the main art on Immortal Hulk, and in fact, I would love to see an entire sequel run by Aaron Cooter, honestly, after reading this one one-shot. It lives within the simplicity, but there is detail when is necessary to make real grotesque scenes. The King in Black nullified symbiote monsters are more scary in this single issue than they are in the actual event comic for me. And in any of the other tie-ins, I really believed that they were a spooky, terrifying threat in this. And the absolute dynamism of every single panel, the way that action is very clearly conveyed, means that I hardly missed that there were no words actually written in this story. It's overall just a very simple tale of the Hulk dealing with these things, although the Savage Hulk himself ends up going back inside of the psyche of Banner when confronted with some traumatic memories of Christmas past that uh, we see played out over and over again over the, the course of the Hulk run. But in his place, Joe Fixit comes out to do a little diehard-style <laughs> sequence where he's walking on uh, glass in the street, leaving bloody footprints for our nullified symbiotes to follow and chase after him. But we see him pick up various things in different parts of the department store, the Mantlos. There's a lot of nice little references to past Hulk writers and artists uh, of infamy and fame. And I don't know, it's, it's hard to describe exactly how much I love the way that you don't need to read a thing to pick up on every single aspect of how this story works. Uh, Joe Fixit uses all of the knowledge he has as Banner uh, to destroy these symbiotes using fire and sonics. But the real heart of it is the end where he realizes that he's still in this department store, he's got time to kill, and he can go to the toy section to transform back into 
the childlike Savage Hulk just to give him one Christmas gift that is so lovely, just the gift of joy to this child. And the look on Joe Fix's face when he understands what he can give is just so heartwarming to me. This issue is great. I highly recommend picking it up. The second short comic that I'd like to talk about today is uh, King of Black, Iron Man, and Doctor Doom. This is one of the all-time goofiest comics I have ever read. I don't, I don't know that I have uh, a terrible amount to say about this because it is extraordinarily silly, but that's kind of what I like about it. This one is written by Christopher Cantwell with Salvador La Roca on art, Guru EFX on colors, and Travis Lanham of VC on letters. And... I have not been reading Iron Man at this point, and I missed out on a lot of the Doctor Doom series by Christopher Cantwell, so I understand that they're both in this book because they're both written by the same author at this time. I, I did. I was a little baffled by why Doom showed up to wish Iron Man a happier Christmas than he was having after having just killed Eddie Brock in the midst of the King in Black saga, but honestly, none of that matters because the first thing that happens is Santa Claus in the form of a venomized, nullified symbiote monster with his eight reindeer shows up in the sky <laughs> to attack the two of them. And so the rest of the issue is entirely given over to Doctor Doom and Iron Man fighting Santa Claus and debating between the two of them the merits of the existence of Kris Kringle himself and whether or not <laughs> they want to believe in his existence. For me, the real key to this is all of Dr. Doom's insanely purple prose and his just spectacular dialogue regarding Santa Claus. Dr. Doom says things like, it cannot be your hallowed gift giver. Tis merely some soulless perversion of the chimneyed one. And honestly, just hearing the chimneyed one is uh, a delight in itself. Since she was completely silly, Dr. Doom slaughters all of the all of Santa's reindeer in this issue. So that's that's a delight if you ever wanted to see that. He refers to them as flying freakish venison and <laughs> antlered avian nightmares uh, or something at some point. It's just it's just a lot of joy given over to being as silly as possible, putting Doctor Doom in the position to constantly talk about Chris Kringle as if he's a real person. Honestly, I don't even need to really talk much about what happens in it. The art is absolutely fine. It looks good. You know, Salvador LaRocca has been doing this for a very long time. It's a story that has no bearing on anything outside of this other than for the sake of a few short jokes. And those jokes are just good. I'm going, <laughs> I want to read off a couple more of Dr. Dooms's great lines in this besides the chimneyed one. Probably the best is when, as they attack the nullified Santa Claus, Dr. Doom gets to shout, Krampus, end thy reign! <laughs> In a bright green <laughs> word bubble of shouting, you have eradicated Nicholas, the jolliest of men, as he tells Iron Man that he has just killed Santa Claus. And let's see, maybe the final fun one is uh, Dr. Doom musing to himself uh, whether or not Claus could in fact be a Sorcerer Supreme himself. Both of these are a lot of fun. If you have a chance to pick them up and read them, I think they're great holiday reading. And I hope you check out some of the other comics that some of my other fellow contributors or Exes for Podcasts will recommend to you on the other segments. Thanks again for listening. I've been Steve. Steve.